Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. It seems that for most people, the end of growth has already arrived. Watching the economic stagnation continue can lead to a malaise and a desire for technology to come to our rescue. For some, the only response will be sitting back to wait for a technological solution to what looks like an ongoing trend of crisis and contraction. But what if you want to roll up your sleeves and get started on a proactive approach? Our guest today is the beloved Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, John Michael Greer, of the widely respected Archdruid Report. In his new book, he says, give up on the idea of a technofix that reboots economic growth as usual and get down to business on practices of appropriate technology. Become a practitioner of green wizardry if you want to succeed in navigating the ongoing crisis. We're talking with John Michael Greer about his new book, Green Wizardry First, on today's episode of The Extra Environmentalist. And then we have a brief conversation with Jessica Kellner, who's the editor-in-chief of Mother Earth Living about her book, Housing Reclaimed, which is an example of people who are looking at limits to money and finance and all of the wasted building materials all across the U.S. She tells us about people who are building houses out of salvage material for as little as a few thousand dollars, putting the ideas of green wizardry into action. You're listening to episode number 72. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And this is The Extra Environmentalist. I need you to believe I have nothing up my sleeve Even if I disappear I'll always keep you in my focus It's true love, not hocus pocus Let's go back to the model that I used in the Ecotechnique future, because it actually stretches the sort of process of transition from our current, what I call abundance industrialism, down through several stages to the point at which an Ecotechnique system would actually be viable. In the second half of the 21st century, it's going to depend very much on where you are, because one of the things that happens in the process of decline from a technological peak is that legacy technologies stay more functional in one place than another. There will be some cities that still have electricity. There will be a lot of places that don't. There will be some places that have relatively high technology available. There are other places where they'll be piecing things together out of scrap. That kind of diversity is actually quite common, as, of course, it is more generally. In 1920, let's say, whether you had running water, electricity, and access to radio signals, where you lived made an immense difference. We have been through a very brief period of globalization powered by a lot of burning through a lot of fossil fuels very quickly that, that allowed a certain amount of generalization to happen across this course of the planet. That's coming apart right now. Now, it depends on where you are. Where most places will be 
if my model holds correctly, is either in what I've called scarcity industrialism on the one hand, or in the early stages of the, stage of the salvage economy on the other. Scarcity industrialism is the kind of thing you see taking shape right now in places like the former Soviet Union, where there is some kind of industrial plant in existence, but access to the products can be a little spotty. There's a lot of government involvement in the economy because the government needs certain things for its military, for its, you know, for, for its functioning. And so you don't have the sort of freewheeling, okay, well, let's invent everything that you get in an abundance industrial society. But um, the point of green wizardry is that a lot of the technology we're going to need to have a viable society in the second half of the 21st century here in America and Europe and other places that are currently industrialized, we are going to have to make ourselves. And I don't mean that ourselves as a society. I mean ourselves as individuals, as families, as small communities, because nobody else is getting ready to do it for us. So I work on a college campus a lot of times and I walk around and I see I see lots of students walking around with their heads buried in their smartphones. <laughs> I, I see this, and I wonder to myself, how are these people going to survive when they don't have that smartphone you know, sticking out of their, their hand? If you're over, over a certain age, you didn't grow up with a smartphone. You learned how to use it. There were other things you used beforehand. And you know, you can learn to do other things quite readily. One of the great superstitions of modern times is that it's impossible to, to downscale. It's impossible to learn how to use a simpler technology than the one you're used to. And I would submit this isn't true. We will be seeing just how easy it is as we proceed. As we, we move forward, there's going to be a window of time where that technology, it is going to be available and, it, and it's going to move farther and farther. I'm wondering about how these people are going to integrate the, the technology that moves into their glasses and then you know to step forward into their other parts of their body so that they're using that technology pretty much 24-7 and it's, it's pretty much integrated into their existence. This attachment to technology, this addiction to technology that has become so much a part of daily culture and daily life, and especially illustrated by these, these college students, wondering how that addiction translates when, when it, there is no longer available. Does it turn to something different? Well, it's a good question. My guess is what's going to happen is that as the technology becomes more and more extravagant, more and more baroque, the number of people who are going to be able to afford it is going to begin to decline rather sharply. We all know that we're having a marvelous economic expansion, quote unquote, in which jobless levels remain sky high. A record number of people are permanently unemployed in the United States today. A record number of children have no source of food but food stamps. And you know, we could go down the list. Our economy is going to bits. And the capacity of Americans to afford these trinkets and toys, which is of course what they are, is by no means guaranteed. So I think very probably what you're going to see 10, 20, 30 years from now is sure there will be people with 24-7 internet broadcast into their glasses or into their, you know, projected onto their retinas. Fill in the blanks. The technology can be done, but the number of people who can do it, who can afford it, is going to be going down and down and down and down until it's simply an affectation of the very well-to-do. Now, the idea behind green wizardry is that mm -hmm. there's a large number of technologies that aren't based on these fancy silicon projections mm -hmm. onto retinas and things that are actually very useful mm -hmm. for our predicament of facing mm -hmm. a society that's going to have to make do with a lot less. Could you describe some of the thinking that went into 
creating the idea of green wizardry and how you kind of see it playing out. Mm -hmm. Well, basically, what I studied and what I put into the green was primarily talking about the stuff that we were doing back in the late 70s and early 80s in the appropriate tech movement. And I say we because I was running around underfoot in that. I was you know, not a name at all. Just one more college kid with starry eyes going, oh, cool, and, and learning how to build small-scale wind turbines and, and the stuff like that. That was at that time understood as the way of the future because it's cheap. You don't need a big centralized factory system, distribution network, all this kind of stuff. People working in their basements and garages can make these things. And that turned out to be the really the crucial factor in that you don't need a concentration of wealth to make these things happen. Most of them are quite cheap. Most of them are relatively simple. You need some basic technical skill with tools to learn how to make them, but that's actually not that difficult to get, and it's very valuable to have. What kind of things am I talking about here? I'm talking about backyard-scale food growing. The immediate response people come up with is, oh, well, you can't grow all your food in the backyard. No, you don't have to. Grains, beans, other bulk crops like that are going to be readily available for a long time. What you need to be able to grow is what everybody grew in their backyard in 1900, which is the fruits and vegetables that have the very concentrated vitamins and nutrients, and maybe a hen house for eggs, maybe a rabbit hutch for rabbit meat, things like that. Small scale, producing the stuff that you can't get in 50-pound sacks. Okay, another example. Small scale energy production, solar water heating, of course, insulation weather stripping. Once you have energy, why waste it? We waste it in fantastic freedom here in the United States these days. The American way of life could be described as a mechanism for turning irreplaceable natural resources into pollution as fast as possible. This is not bright. So instead of doing that, what do you do? Okay, we have heat from whatever source. Do you want to be pumping it out the windows and the doors to heat the great outdoors? No, not if you have the brains the gods gave geese. So instead... You insulate, you weather strip, you have insulated window coverings over your windows. You do all these simple things that were worked out in the 1970s. Most people can slash their energy bill, their household energy bill, by up to half with very modest investments. Then you do things like the solar water heaters, which knock 10% off your household energy use in most areas. You have small-scale wind, where that's workable. You have small-scale water power, where that's workable. You have solar. I mean, there's a range of things that can all be done on a household level. The crucial point here is that you cannot use them to do the standard yuppie suburban energy-wasting lifestyle. You do actually have to change your life a little bit. But the upside of that is that you actually have a warm, dry, comfortable place to live, hot water from the tap, lights, things like that which you control yourself. You are not dependent on the survival of the overall system, the country or the state or what have you. So this is what people were looking at. This is what we were doing. And that's the model that I've drawn for green wizardry because that's the approach that I think, given how many opportunities we've already flushed down the toilet, how much time we've wasted, and how little time we have left as the limits to growth bite more and more tightly around us, this is probably the best option we have to preserve something like a functional way of living in a very, very difficult time. So I know all of our listeners out there are wondering how the young John Michael Greer, who has started to become interested in windmills and these kind of things as a, as a young man in college, became the green wizard that he is today. Well, it's, it's fairly simple. In the early part of the Reagan years, many of our listeners will not remember the days when Ronald Reagan came galloping in the White House going, it's morning in America. 
insisting that we don't have to conserve, we don't have to do this, we don't, we don't have to change our lifestyles, pedal to the metal, baby, and people cheered. I, I swear you probably heard the sigh of relief on the moon, because people have been trying nervously to nerve themselves up to not being the most energy-wasting, ridiculously extravagant nation on earth, and now they didn't have to give that up. An enormous number of people basically chickened out, wimped out, bailed out of the whole appropriate tech thing, all the green activities, and went off and got nice yuppie jobs working for big corporations instead. A few of us did not wimp out. And so we had the, um, I speak for myself here, but I know I've talked to other people, we had the interesting experience of being treated with, you know, various things between pitying scorn and raw disgust by the people who had, when we were continuing to save energy, to live less ecologically damaging lifestyles. And everyone's going, hey man, get with the program. You know, don't you know that's so 70s? Well, <clears throat> here we are. So I basically stuck with it. So that was the reason why when peak oil stopped becoming something nobody talked about anymore and started becoming a reality that's shaping our lives, I was one of the people who was ready to step up to the plate saying, oh yeah, we talked about that a lot in the 70s. Everyone knew this was going to happen. And most people pretended that, well, well, it's not going to happen after all. I'm sure they'll think of something. Well, they didn't. And here we are. Do you see being a green wizard a similar process to that of voluntary simplicity, or is it something else? Well, it, it, there can be some connection there. Basically, the issue here, when you start talking about voluntary simplicity, Henry David Thoreau, who actually invented the concept, called it voluntary poverty. But you can't call it that nowadays because people get scared. Nothing panics Americans more certainly than the thought that they might be mistaken for somebody who makes less money than they do. And we talk about it being a classless society. We are not a classless society. We have a caste system that would make traditional India look egalitarian. And it all depends on how much money you make. So people panicked at that. They created this idea of voluntary simplicity. And if you'll notice, it actually costs more money and involves more conspicuous consumption to do the voluntary simplicity thing of buying all of these simple products that you find advertised in the glossy, heavily advertisement-rich voluntary simplicity magazines and so on. It's just another form of conspicuous consumption. There is such a thing as actually living a simpler lifestyle, actually embracing Thoreau's concept of voluntary poverty. There is such a thing as looking at your lifestyle and saying, why am I wasting so much money and energy and so much of a share of the planet when it's not even making me happy? And there's all kinds of other good things. But Green Wizardry goes beyond that. It's also talking about what are the systems that sustain your life? What are the systems that make it possible for you to live your life, either the way you do now or the way you're going to, as the industrial age winds down? How can you take personal control over those systems instead of being dependent on vast, impersonal bureaucracies that are just in it to, you know, strip you of your assets? You know, why don't you take over some of the work of providing a little of your own food? Why don't you take over some of the work of hanging on to the energy that you're paying for? And, and all these things, looking at all the different things that sustain your life, how can you make that happen on a personal scale, on a family scale, on a community scale, rather than leaving it to big, nature-destroying corporate and government structures? And, of course, that involves rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. 
Of course, that's the, the difficult thing. Uh, so many people that I've met who've done the voluntary simplicity trip, not all. I mean, there are people who have actually done some very productive things with it. But a great many of them, it's a matter of choosing what you're going to buy. And I think that's something that Americans have a really hard time with is actually deciding to roll up the sleeves and actually deciding to do the work because... Rather than just going to the store and buying something. Exactly. Exactly. They have the smartphones, they have the cars, they have the technology right at their fingertips. Why even Mm -hmm. do the work? Why even grow your own food when you could just go to the grocery store? You just go to the grocery stores. You get some ghastly plastic substance that pretended to be food once upon a time. Hey... And there again, it depends on how dependent you want to be. It depends on how vulnerable you want to be to the vagaries of this gargantuan government corporate system that's fairly evidently lurching toward collapse. And your life depends on its survival day by day. So do you want to do something about that? Partly it's that American caste system. Actually rolling up your sleeves and doing something, doing physical work, that's for poor people. We can't have that. We're, we're all trying to be middle class. And people who are middle class never actually do anything. They sit and, and process information and other people live their lives for them. We need to grow up and get past that. Why is it that anyone would want to be a green wizard? Because I think for most people, they think of the idea of mm-hmm. Gandalf the Grey or something <laughs> like that, except in a green costume. So why that phrase? Why that phrase? Well, the thing is, the phrase actually happened almost by accident. I had been translating the project on the other end of my literary work. I ended up translating this 10th century manual for apprentice wizards. I I kid you not. It's all about astrology and magic and uh, philosophy and all kinds of things like that, that actual practitioners of magic and occult back in the 10th century were expected to know. So I was translating this out of Latin and was noting that for all that that was heavily larded with the occultism and the astrology and all that kind of stuff, there is also an immense amount of practical knowledge. You were expected to get out there and, for example, learn everything that was known about agriculture. Why? Because when the king or some rich peasant comes to you and says, oh, great wizard, what am I going to do about X problem? You need to be able to tell them. And you need to know military strategy. And you need to know about economics. And it runs through this laundry list of things that a wizard in training should learn. And I was looking at that and going, you know, this actually makes a lot of sense because the basic task of members of that profession, and it was a profession back in these days, you'd have seen soothsayers and, and diviners and wizards and sorcerers and people who made their living offering good advice. And it was, of course, heavily interlarded with sorcery of various kinds, but most of what they provided was good advice. And it occurred to me that that's something we really need at this point, is people who know how to do certain practical things and can offer good advice. Okay, you know, your energy bills are killing you. Oh, great wizard, what should we do about that? And the wizard opens his tome and says, ah, what you need to do is insulation and weather stripping, or what have you. So that, that kind of joke turned into a post that I put on the Archsteward Report where I used that metaphor of the wizard and and talking about appropriate tech. And that post went viral. It was crazy. I had never had a post get that many page views or, or that many comments before that time. And so I said, okay, we've got something interesting here. And I started talking more about this thinking of 
the appropriate tech that I'd learned back in the day and that I continue to practice as a kind of wizardry, as a kind of, you know, mysterious lore from the dawn of time passed on in leather-bound tomes. Actually, the tomes in question were usually cheaply mimeographed, and you can get them for about a buck each at the kind of used bookstore that never rotates its stock. But that's another point entirely. It was a fun game, basically. But it took off. And very quickly, a lot of people were saying, wow, yeah, I want to be a green wizard. And then people in, in some of the other ends of the green scene started denouncing it, which is always a good sign. Rob Hopkins of the transition people did this very <clears throat> throat-clearing post criticizing this whole green wizards thing. And I, I, I'm really grateful for that because he gave me a lot of free publicity. And, of course, I posted something arguing with him, and it, it went around a couple of times. But the funny thing is a lot of the people that I know who are doing the green wizardry thing are also affiliated to one way or another with Rob's transition town thing. It all works together. Now, where would I actually go in order to learn the things I'd need to know to be a green wizard? Because it seems like it's the opposite of the philosophy of our education system today of going and getting maybe a PhD in a very narrow area. And I don't really know anything outside of that area. To be a green wizard, I need to have a broad field of knowledge. Yeah, and they know absolutely nothing about anything else. Yeah, the way that I kind of walked through, through this thing, of course, the first thing you need to do is buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> that should go without saying. The second thing is head down to one of these used bookstores that I mentioned. Actually, nowadays, a few of the old classics are coming back out. I'm thinking The Integral Urban House, I think, has been reprinted by New Society. Some of the other old classics of the appropriate tech movement are back in print. But most of them go to one of those used bookstores where the shelves rise up to the ceiling and there's dust on many of the books. They never change their stock. And in a back corner, it will not have a sign saying naked hippie stuff, but it should. Okay. And you will find all these books from the 60s and 70s and early 80s about energy conservation, about growing your own food, about salvage of various kinds, do-it-yourself stuff. There was an immense literature of the kind. And it's usually the out-of-the-way, creaky used bookstores that don't get a lot of traffic and that don't change their their stock very often and that are poorly lit and dusty. That's where you want to go. That's where the holy grails of appropriate tech always turn up. So you go there and just pick up some books from the appropriate tech end of things, from the naked hippie stuff section, and read them and choose a project and say, you know, I want to build a solar cooker. I've always heard about solar cookers. I want to build one. Here are some plans. You know, I need some plywood. I need, oh, okay, a saw. I've got the hammer, and but the nails are the wrong. Okay. And then you go down to the hardware store, and you pick up, and the lumber store. You pick up the plywood. You pick up this, the other. You make the thing. You take it out on the next warm, sunny day, which admittedly will be some months from now, so you've got some time to do some work on the building. And you set it up, and you put your food in there, and you go, wow, that's just sunlight, and it's cooking my dinner. You, Padawan, have taken your first step in initiation as a green wizard. <clears throat> and that's the way it works. Or you read three or four books on organic intensive gardening, and you finally say, you know, I could take a piece in my backyard and do a bed. And you do it, and you dig the thing down all the way the way you have to work in lots of organic matter and follow all the instructions in whatever couple of books you're working at, whether it's the How to Grow More Vegetables or any of the books from that period. And you plant your seeds, and then all of a sudden you find that you've got a whole bunch of fresh vegetables coming up. And you start learning the process. This is not something that you can learn fast. 
It is not something that the, the process of initiation as a brewing wizard is a gradual one, and it takes a lot of hands-on experience. And there will be failures, there will be flops, there will be things that don't work, and that's all part of the learning curve. Are we seeing more green wizards sh showing up nowadays? Is this something that's a trend that you see happening? Heck of a good question. Well, of course, the book has only been out for a little while. A lot of people are not calling themselves green wizards. I, I don't actually know how many people have suddenly woken up and rubbed the sleep out of their eyes and gone, holy cow, I need to do something because industrial society is crashing to ruin around me. There are some. I hear from people who said, I used to be complete computer geek tech head, and it just suddenly hit me over the head that this is not an arrangement with the future. And so I've started growing a garden in my backyard, or I've started working on this, that, and the other in my basement. I, you know, I've, I've, I've gone and got my ham radio license, and I'm starting to learn how to do communication when you don't have an internet to do it for you, and all this kind of stuff. So it is happening, but I have no idea of numbers. What advice do you have to the growing number of people who are realizing the systemic nature of today's crises and are beginning to understand that there's something terribly wrong with the foundational ideas behind modern industrial civilization? Okay, the first piece of advice is it's very easy to get overwhelmed. And it's very easy to say, oh, I, I have to do everything and therefore never get around to doing anything. Find a project. Find some angle that interests you, whether that's growing some of your own food, whether that's some other kind of low-tech, high-tech, basically figuring out how to use simple basement technologies to do interesting things. Whatever turns your crank, find something that fires your passion and then find out who else is doing it. Link up with people. Find right, we have the internet for the time being. While it's there, might as well make use of it. Make contact with people. Find out what's going on in that field. Are there interesting tricks of the trade that you might benefit from? Is there a local group? Get involved and become part of the community of people who are doing these kinds of things because then you're not just sitting there alone watching the soaring towers of the industrial project creak and shudder around you you know that there's a bunch of people working on a bunch of different things. You only have to tackle one part of the project at a time. And that's crucial. There's a lot of stuff today that claims to be green, that claims to be sustainable, but it all falls in this category of greenwashing. How do you distinguish between what would be green wizardry and what would actually just be greenwashing? Okay, well, first of all, there is no pope of green wizardry, not even me. There is no body that can say this is acceptable and this is not, and that's for the best. I'll get into the reasons why at the moment. Basically, if you're doing it yourself, it's probably not greenwashing. If you're actually rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, it's probably not greenwashing. No, it might be. But my experience with greenwashing is that in most cases, it's an excuse to keep on living the exact same life you're living now, but you have some nice green toys, like the... The house that I used to walk past in Ashland, Oregon when I lived there, which had this marvelous run of solar panels on the north slope of the roof, which is the side facing the street, you understand, so it's very visible, but it never gets any sunlight. So they were just there as an advertisement of how ecologically sensitive. That's the kind of greenwashing thing. But you get people, you know, they put up all the solar panels and they have the hybrid car, but their lifestyle has not changed a bit. And their actual energy footprint is as big as the, the Republican next door. Okay. Are they getting their hands dirty? Are they making an actual change in their impact on the planet? 
It's not too difficult to figure out who's doing what. Now, the thing I wanted to say about why we don't have a Pope of Green Wizardry and never will, one of the basic principles behind this, as behind any really successful, innovative approach, is dissensus. I think I've talked about that on a past show here. But dissensus is the deliberate avoidance of consensus. It's, you know, not, we're all going to sit down and pass a talking stick and figure out what to do, but well, why don't you do the thing that works for you, and I'll try this one, and you, know, you guys over there, try the thing that works. Everybody tries something different, because that maximizes the number of new, effective, interesting things you come up with. And that's really what we need right now, is as many experiments going as possible. Even the most improbable, even the most ridiculous, as long as people are doing it and not just sitting around talking on the internet saying, oh, wow, it would be really cool if somebody built a thorium reactor or, or what have you. An ongoing theme in your work is that there's a number of basic ideas about the world that most people, when they go through our modern school system, that they get in their heads and that are entirely wrong, and it leads to this malfunctioning of our societies, our economies, etc. And so when thinking about appropriate technology, what basic ideas are we going to need to change to appropriately use appropriate technology? Okay, the first thing that everyone has to understand is that limits exist. Now, you would think that would be obvious, but we have had centuries of people insisting on using infinite this and limitless that and blah, blah, blah. Garrett Hardin, who was a very important ecological thinker, now passed away, unfortunately, used to say that when anybody says X is infinite, what they're actually saying is, I refuse to think about X. So anytime you hear words like infinite or limitless or what have you, the person is saying, I refuse to think about the subject. Everything is subject to limits. This includes energy. Okay? There is nothing more common than people going, oh, but there's an infinite amount of energy in the universe. So what? We can only access a very, very finite portion of that at a trickle for most sources. If you don't get limits, you don't get reality, and reality is going to get you. So we have to start by rejecting the fantasy of limitlessness. The second thing is to realize that energy, matter, and information are not the same thing, and they don't follow the same rules. Okay, Energy flows from a source to a sink, and then it's gone. You have, in the case of most forms of energy, the, the source is the sun. Okay, we have the sun, we have solar energy streaming down on the earth, gets transformed in various ways. Eventually, that energy radiates out into deep space and you know, becomes part of the background radiation of the universe. You can't get it back. And you can only make it work by letting it fall a certain distance on its trip from the source to the sink. If you got that, you understand energy. You understand why there is no perpetual motion. There is, and zero-point energy will have zero use. Because if it's already reached zero point, you can't do anything with it. It's fallen to the sink level. So, energy moves in straight lines from source to sink. Matter goes in circles. If you throw it out the front door, it sneaks in the back door and clobbers you. If you throw poisons down your drain, they will show up in your breakfast cereal three days later, or what have you. Matter always moves in circles. The only way to do it safely is to make sure you understand the circles and to make them work for your benefit, rather than having them clobber you. Information. People are really stupid about information these days. You get Ray Kurzweil insisting that the amount of information is increasing exponentially, and that means that pretty soon we'll all be omniscient. <clears throat> Actually, information is not increasing exponentially, because information, there's the useful definition made back in the day, it's a difference that makes a difference. Now, makes a difference to whom? That's exactly the question. What is information to you may not be information to anybody else. 
Information comes out of sorting data. Now, the amount of data that we're producing has continually increased at an exponential rate, but the amount of information has not, because you only get information when you sort the data with a particular intention in mind. Okay? It's, it's like looking at a window. If you're trying to see whether the window's clean, you're looking at the window and all the shapes beyond it are noise. If you're looking out the window to see if the pizza guys showed up, the mud on the window is the noise. Which one's the signal? Which one's the noise? Which one's information? That depends on how you're looking at it. And so information can both be created and destroyed, and it only happens because somebody's searching the data with a particular intention. It doesn't move in straight lines. It doesn't move in circles. And the more of it you get, actually, the more noise you have in the way of actually sorting out the signal. So they're not the same thing. And when you get people saying, well, because our information is increasing, then we have no material limits, they are smoking their shorts. Information and matter do not follow the same laws. Matter and energy do not follow the same laws. Energy and information do not follow the same laws. You have to keep them straight or you end up talking nonsense. Okay, those are some of the kinds of mental problems that we have to get past to make any kind of sense of the world that we find ourselves in. But I think in a lot of ways, the crucial point that we have to get past, the crucial mistake is this notion that we are somehow outside the system. Man, the conqueror of nature. I've been writing about that in my blogs recently. This, this imaginary being that we call man, the conqueror of nature. He's not you. He's not me. He's not anybody who's ever lived. He's a fictional character, but we all think that we're him or part of him or carried along his backpack as he strides heroically forward from the caves to the stars. This is a myth. This is, you know, man, the conqueror of nature is as mythical as Hercules, maybe even more so. But he shapes how we think moment by moment in this crazy society. We're all talking about how man will conquer nature. Well, no. <clears throat> man may succeed in clobbering himself by attempting to conquer nature. But it's not that like nature is a territory that can be invaded. There, there's this whole cascade of misbegotten metaphors surrounding man and the conquest of nature that we have got to grow out of. And green wizardry is actually a good way to do that. You learn very quickly if you're running a garden. It doesn't help you to try to conquer nature. You need to work in harmony with her, which man the conqueror of nature has no idea how to do. Just, there, there's this whole, catas this, this whole cascade of misbegotten metaphors surrounding man and the conquest of nature that we have got to grow out of. And green wizardry is actually a good way to do that. You learn very quickly if you're, if you're running a garden. It doesn't help you to try to conquer nature. You need to work in harmony with her. Which man the conqueror of nature has no idea how to do. is a singular creature. He has a set of gifts which make him unique among the animals, so that unlike them, he is not a figure in the landscape, he is the shaper of the landscape. Every landscape in the world is full of exact and beautiful adaptations by which an animal fits into its environment like one cogwheel into another. But nature, that is evolution, has not fitted man to any specific environment. On the contrary, 
He has a rather crude survival kit. And yet, this is the paradox of the human condition, one that fits him to all environments. His imagination, his reason, his emotional subtlety and toughness make it possible for him not to accept the environment, but to change it. And that series of inventions by which man from age to age has remade his environment is a different kind of evolution, not biological, but cultural evolution. I call that brilliant sequence of cultural peaks the ascent of man. When my grandparents were children, the electric light, the automobile, the airplane, and the radio were stupefying technological advances, the wonders of the age. This notion that green is just a lifestyle issue, it's about living in a teepee and eating tofu and wearing sandals, it is not. It's about economic power, it's about innovation power, it's ultimately about national power. The true engine of economic growth will always be companies like Solyndra, and we're poised to lead our competitors in the development of new technologies and products and businesses. And we are poised to generate countless new jobs, good paying middle class jobs right here in the United States of America. By 2020, we'll have computers that are powerful enough to simulate the human brain. Uh, so these technologies will be a million times more powerful within 20 years. In fact, the speed of exponential growth is itself speeding up. This civilization of ours that we're so proud of, this civilization with its so-called civilized behavior, you ever stop and realize how fragile all this is? How fragile the whole structure, how easily it could all just break right down? Just break right down. Wouldn't take much. Probably happened in less than two years. Wouldn't take much all to throw us right back into barbaric times. All you'd have to do would be eliminate electricity. Well, in all the disaster scenarios you read, what happens is that without power, technologically-based civilization cracks up rapidly. Without enough auxiliary power, and most major cities don't have it, organization is impossible. It's every man for himself. Looting and arson follow. And in a city not prepared to be a fortress, supplies run out fast. And however frightening the thought of leaving your technological womb, sooner or later, there is nowhere to go but out, away from the danger. You may have heard that we have today more scientists alive than all previous mankind put together. And you may well ask, what are they all doing? <laughs> and uh, the answer will come back, they're all solving problems. <laughs> now, you might get really worried, aren't we running out of problems? But no, don't worry about that. <laughs> we have them bigger and better. That is due to the fact that we, we take a, a violent approach to the sol uh, solving of problems, like taking a big sledgehammer and cracking the nut so that it flies in all directions. And we have 12, see the 12 new problems. And then we take 12 sledgehammers. That, that's called exponential growth. <laughs> if this is so, too big, too complex, too expensive, and too violent, so then let's look in the opposite direction. Are we really so daft, so incompetent, that we can't uh, find uh, solutions to our problems with rather smaller equipment, simpler equipment, cheaper equipment, deploying a soft technology, a technology that works with nature, 
It doesn't bludgeon her all the time. Now this is the approach of intermediate technology, alternative technology, a new direction of looking. It's not a definition of something in particular. It's a new and different direction of looking to correct the over-exaggerated development of the last 50 or 100 years. Not to throw away any science, but to use science in a more humane way. To my little book, which uh, uh, some of you have seen, I gave the subtitle Economics as if people mattered. Economics was being pursued, is being pursued as if the last thing you think about is the people. You think about production. You think about the balance of payments. You think about inflation, but you never think about people. You think by thinking of those technical things, you are thinking of people, but you don't. You're listening to episode number 72 of The Action Environmentalist. Today we're talking with John Michael Greer about his new book, Green Wizardry. It seems to me that man as the conqueror of nature, this this idea, this, this stereotype or um, role that we've found ourselves in, and as well as the middle class, the higher class, the lower class, all, all kind of need to be reimagined. These these class systems, these, these ideas of classifying humanity need to be re- reimagined. Is this, is this where green wizards kind of fit in to help us restructure our society in that well, way? Well, I think the green wizardry more specifically, it has a rather more modest goal. It's not an attempt to restructure our thinking so much as a way to hand out useful tools that may keep some of us alive and comfortable in some very hairy times. Can it contribute to the process of reimagining the world? Well, yes, I think it can. But that's a broader and, frankly, a more challenging task. You are not going to reimagine the world by building a solar cooker or digging a part of your garden to put in a vegetable bed or something. You can certainly reimagine the world at the same time. And you can certainly start by, say, throwing your TV in the dumpsters so you don't have some corporation paying millions of dollars to put its version of the world into your head. Just one of those things. In Green Wizardry, you bring up these three core areas of food, energy, and shelter that people can start to master skills. Let's start with food. What skills do people need to master in order to become a green wizard with food? Well, basically, it depends on your circumstances. If you own or rent a home and you have uh, gardening privileges in the backyard, you can very easily get to the point that you're providing a significant part of your own food year-round, depending on where you live, of course. Intensive organic gardening is very effective. It's been developed at great length. It, It does not require any great amount of experimentation at this point, and it will produce bumper crops of stuff as long as you keep the garden fed with the organic waste matter. If you want to get into small-scale livestock, chickens, rabbits, increasingly the the various zoning rules and so on that have forbidden those are being overturned in various parts of the country. So that's, that's an increasingly useful thing. Food preservation, food preparation, there's a whole world out there. Bluntly, the modern habit of just swinging to the deli and picking up dinner is a really good example of the fact that I don't think people think about what they're doing because... Okay, yes, you're getting a bunch of plastic that once pretended to be food. That you know, You're used to it, okay. Cooking is not that difficult. Canning is not that difficult. It doesn't take anything like the amount of time 
effort, pain, and woe that the, the nice man in the nice commercial from the nice corporation wants to make you think because he wants you to buy the canned product. There's a whole world of things you can do with food. And they don't require spending hours and hours slaving in the kitchen. I mean, no sane human being wants to do the Martha Stewart thing. And there's no need to. So that's food. Whether we're talking food production, food preservation, um, food preparation, there's a whole world of simple skills that can be put to use quite readily by individuals who want to learn how. And again, it's if that fires your fancy, if that's the thing that calls to you. In terms of energy, the field is completely wide open. There are energy con methods of energy conservation, methods of energy of small-scale local energy production, whether home-scale, community-scale, what have you. There's just literally more than I could list if I sat down and just started making a list here on the air. There are many, many different ways of producing, saving, using, redirecting, recirculating, doing neat stuff with energy. It was a very hot field back in the day because, of course, the energy crisis of the 1970s rather, rather inspired that. In terms of shelter, that depends hugely on, again, on your resources. Obviously, you know, if you're living in the back of your car, your options for shelter are going to be somewhat limited at this point, and an increasing number of Americans are. If you own your own home, you've got an immense amount of possibilities. If you have the money to build one, especially, very few people do these days. But if you do, there are even more possibilities. But a lot of what I focus on in my book and a lot of what the movement focused on back in the day was retrofitting. Taking an existing home, whatever it turned out to be, whatever you could afford, and transforming it into something that conserved energy, produced some of its own energy, could produce food, all these various other things. There's a fascinating book, I referenced it earlier, The Integral Urban House, which was written back in, what, the early 80s, I think was when it was published by the Farallonis Institute, an outfit in the Bay Area that got a perfectly ordinary urban house. California style and proceeded to transform this perfectly ordinary house into an ecosystem on an ordinary urban lot. It produced much of its own food. It was very well insulated. It produced some of its own energy. It produced all its own hot water. It had trees in places that kept the heat down in the hot parts of the summer and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on, starting with a perfectly ordinary house. Retrofitting like that is, I think, in many ways the way for the future, at least for the time being. We've got a lot of vacant housing in this country, and eventually it'll have to be put to use. So those are some of the options. A lot of it, though, again, as per the principle of dissensus, it's not a matter of me listing options. It's a matter of each reader, each listener, each person interested in this stopping and saying, what turns my crank? What fires my enthusiasm? You know, what is it that really speaks to me? What part of this puzzle do I want to tackle? And there it's much less a matter of finding something that somebody else has already done, although that's something you can certainly do, but saying, well, you know, if somebody's done this, I can pick up and run with it. If nobody's done this, the field is wide open. I wonder what I can do. And that spirit, that spirit of saying, well, what can I do? What are the options open to me right here, right now? What turns my crank? What fires my enthusiasm? Um... <laughs> One of those little problems. You know, what is it that really speaks to you? What, do I want, what part of this puzzle do I want to tackle? And there it's much less a matter of finding something that somebody else has already done, although that's something you can certainly do, but saying, well, you know, if somebody's done this, I can pick up and run with it. If nobody's done this, the field is wide open. I wonder what I can do. And that spirit, that spirit of saying, well, what can I do? What are the options open to me right here, right now? A lot of the things that you're talking about, I feel like they revolve around this idea of curiosity, 
this idea of human curiosity that I find so very rare in the people that I interact with. People are not interested in finding these new new ways of doing things, of tinkering, of hacking. They're very content with with going about their daily lives, and this curiosity, even with with one another, is seems to me such a rare characteristic, and I don't seem to find it in too many people. And but but it seems to me that that all the ideas that you're talking about kind of revolve and rely on that human curiosity. Well, one of the other reasons behind the whole green wizards metaphor is that everybody isn't a wizard. Okay, one of the things we have to deal with is that most people in the modern industrial world are clinging like grim death to a way of life that has no future. Now, it may be that they will in fact cling to it until it's pulled out of their cold, stiff hands. We will hope not, but that may well be one of the ways things turn out. But that way of life is unsustainable. And so those people who do have the curiosity, who do have the willingness to pursue change, or who have the passion, or who feel the necessity, there are many different motivations there. But those people who have that reaction can get to work now, rather than waiting for everyone else to catch up, because they're not gonna, not until they're forced to. So yes, this is an approach for a minority. This is one of the things that came up in my dialogue with Rob Hopkins. He was going, well, you just have these isolated human beings, they ought to go out and like get it. their communities involved. Okay, fine. What if you live in a community where 95% of the voters are Republicans and they're not interested in this stuff? What if you live in a community that's, you know, very liberal Democrat, but it's very liberal Democrat, yuppie, you know, we're going to solve the climate crisis by having other people cut back on their carbon consumption. Of course, I can't because I have to drive my children to this, that and the other in my SUV. There are a lot of communities that are not interested in coming aboard in um, a transition town thing. There are also people who have been there, done that, done the community organization thing, and would sooner chew on a rat's pancreas than go through that one again. Okay? And so, yes, this is for individuals. It can be for isolated individuals, people who, for reasons of opportunity or interest, they're the only person they know who's interested in this stuff. Can they still make a contribution? Absolutely. This is one of the ways. For reasons of opportunity or interest, they're the only person they know who's interested in this stuff. Can they still make a contribution? Absolutely. This is one of the ways. Now, what about people with very little to no financial resources to get started or someone with very limited space? I'm thinking of a place like New York City with lots of people, very crowded, getting access to a garden plot may be difficulty because you live in a small apartment. What's your advice to people in those kinds of situations for getting started? Mm -hmm. Well, very often what's going on in a situation like that, when you have so many people close together, you also have the capacity for organizations. You have the capacity to get together with other people who share an interest to find somebody who has a piece of a property that could be turned into a garden. This is actually happening all over the big cities, of course. Urban vegetable gardens are a big thing and growing bigger all the time. And so, sure, you can't necessarily set up a garden if you live in a little apartment somewhere. There are other things you can do. Learn to brew beer. I've been arguing for a long time that's probably the single most useful thing you can do in getting ready for a really challenging future. If the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride up to your door and you can hand each of them a mug of foamy beer, they're your friends. So there are a whole range of practical skills, of useful things you can do, that don't necessarily involve having a suburban house with a basement and a backyard and so on. If you have access to those things, or if you can network with other people to find somebody who has a workshop space, or, you know, get together a bunch of people and raise the funds among you 
so that you can afford to get a little piece of warehouse space somewhere to serve as a workshop. All of these are options. And one of the crucial factors here is that all of this stuff was done back in the day in the 70s and 80s by people who were stressed by the major economic troubles of those times, most of whom had very little money, shoestring budgets, and they were saying, okay, what can we do on the basis of, of sweat equity, salvage, and stuff we can get cheap? And so, again, it's not like the sort of green consumerism that we get where people have the expensive solar panels on this and the expensive Prius in the driveway and the um, organic garden tended by their undocumented Mexican workforce <coughs> who they're cheating on their wages and all the other things. I wish I could say I was making this up. I am not. I've seen all these things among people who were very, very, very much into being green. <coughs> I'm thinking of different scenarios of people who might get excited about these ideas and start trying them, and maybe they live in a house and convert their lawn into a garden, and they have a homeowners association that gets frustrated. What's, uh, how can people deal with that? Now, first of all, I want you to notice what you're doing here. What you're doing here is trying to come up with reasons not to do the thing. Okay. Well, what if they don't have enough space? Well, what if the homeowners association, dot, dot, dot. Okay, yes. It's possible to come up with an endless series of reasons to sit on your butt. I don't recommend it as a strategy. Now, as a specific answer, if you are fool, if you were fool enough to live somewhere that has a homeowners association, then you need to take them into account from day one. Okay, this is not necessarily that difficult. You probably can't get rid of your lawn out front, but depending on just how unwise you were when you chose where to move, the homeowners association may or may not notice that uh, some of your um, ornamentals are actually edible. Um, you may or may not have the ability to do things in your backyard. You may or may not have the ability to put in a greenhouse or cold frames, assuming that they, they're made to look nice. There are a dizzying range of things. You also presumably will have a garage or a basement that you could turn into a workshop to do things. But yes, if you bought into a place with a homeowners association, you must take them into account from the beginning. Talk to them. Make sure that what you're doing is not going to make them panic over the fantasy that their houses actually have resale value, which most, of course, don't these days. Um, now, of course, the easiest thing is to avoid living someplace that has a homeowners association. That's actually not by, by no means universal in the United States. It's simply that um, you, have to, you have to be in the upper middle class in most areas to be able to afford a place that has a homeowners association. Um, I, I made the, my wife and I made the choice to live in a, in an old red brick mill town in north central Appalachia where the term homeowners association uh, has apparently never been heard and where the city ordinances would allow you if you wanted to, to keep pigs in your backyard. We don't have any pigs in our backyard, but we could. So a lot depends on where you choose to live. And that's another thing that the green wizard should keep in mind. So do you see the green wizard trend emerging from a middle class or from a poor class or from a, a rich class? Where do you see that coming from? My guess, based on the people that I know who are into it, is that it is primarily catching on right now among a class that is not supposed to exist, which is to the downwardly mobile former middle class. America is supposed to be the land of upward mobility. Of course, that hasn't actually been true since the 1970s. Nowadays, downward mobility is one of the major facts of life. People who were raised in a middle class or upper middle class background who are never going to have more than a working class income, if that. And it's among those downwardly mobile people that I've met where green wizardry seems to have the biggest appeal. Now, exactly how that's going to play out as we proceed is an interesting question. The best case scenario would be 
increasing rapprochement between the downwardly mobile green wizards with their educational background and so on, and the poor, who are going to be very interested in things that will allow them to maintain a decent life in a difficult economic era. So that could turn into something very big if it takes off, but you know, we'll see. One can't really know in advance. So are you seeing these people like as college kids that are graduating from school, not finding the jobs, and then becoming part of that, that new downwardly mobile uh, middle class? It's partly that. It's partly there, there are also college kids who are looking at the fact that they could go to school and end up a quarter million dollars in debt with no job and are simply not going to college. And there are people who have been laid off and they're not going to get another job because the entire industry has shut down in this country and, and they don't particularly want to move to Singapore and work for $2 a day. And there are people who are looking at retiring and realizing that, well, the pension isn't there anymore because the company got bought up by the company that got bought up by the, you know, or what have you. There's a lot of ways to be downwardly mobile in American society these days. And so people from many of these different angles are connecting into the thing and saying, okay, well, I guess. As we start wrapping up here, I wanted to dive into some green wizardry approaches to transportation. Unaffordability of transportation fuels has been a rapidly growing problem for people around the world post-2008. What are some green wizardry ideas for transportation? Obviously, the first thing you need to do is to live close to where you work. Now, I mentioned that and people start having cows herds of cows. But in fact, that's what most people do in most of the world. You can't assume that you will be able to commute. While public transit exists, that's great. You can't assume it's going to be there. Many places have been slashing their public transit just at the time that it's most useful. Live close to the place you work. That's the easy one. Generally, when you're looking at a place to live, pay attention to what's nearby. Make sure you're within walking distance, the resources you need, as well as walking distance of your job, of schools, if you have children, what have you. This is the kind of thing that people everywhere else in the world do as a matter of course. Americans are a bit stupid about it because we haven't had to, and now we have to again, or we will in the near future. So basically, most transportation in the years to come is probably going to involve feet and bicycles. There is no way to run an automobile without extravagant energy inputs, and no matter how you play it, petroleum's really the only, uh, well, petroleum or some other secondhand fossil fuel, I mean, electric cars these days are, are being charged by plants that are burning natural gas and coal. It's just that they're not burning it out of their own tailpipes. But if you don't have fossil fuels, you're not going to have cars. And so we can assume that that's gradually going to wind down. Those areas that have train service, that's a great idea. Eventually, we're probably going to see a lot of uh, reopening of canals. But that's for the far future. For now, if you're really gung-ho about transportation, I would encourage you to get involved in some of the neat stuff that's being done with bicycles. Are there any honorary green wizards that you'd like to mention, or even people who have taken up some of these ideas and started initiatives in their own lives and have written into you that you'd like to mention here as we close out? Well, it, it, would, be, it would be hard to pick any one, because I hear from scores of people. And in many cases, the ones that, that impress me the most are the ones who are the quietest about it. They've got the backyard that's producing probably half their annual food intake. And it's not a big deal. They've been doing it since 1974, or they've been doing it since 1996, or what have you. And they're not doing anything out of the ordinary, except that they're doing it, and a lot of other people are talking about it. 
Or, or the person who spends his time building solar water heaters in the batch style, making just these beautiful things, will make them sell one, make another one sell it, and this kind of thing. That's lovely. And it's, it's making a real contribution. There are a lot of people all over the place who are doing interesting things with old-fashioned crafts, with the food growing preparation, preservation, with energy, people who are looking at their house. Every year they're going, okay, what am I going to do this year to decrease my energy footprint from this house? Because you can bring it in stages. And people who do, every single year, they're making, they're making their lives less of a burden to the planet. It's not that hard. But it's the ones who, who actually do the thing who are the ones that matter. You're listening to Extra Environmentalist, episode number 72. And next, we're speaking with Jessica Kellner, author of Housing Reclaimed, about building houses with reclaimed materials for next to nothing. When the housing crisis came about, every morning on the drive to work, I'm listening to NPR and more and more people in foreclosure, more and more people underwater on their homes, all of the myriad problems that we saw when the really big housing crisis hit, and kind of thinking at the same time of all of these different alternative methods that we had seen people doing, people that we sort of profiled, I knew more about their groups outside of what had been in the magazine, and was kind of thinking like, there's all these alternative methods for creating housing for people that struck me as really important to be discussing during this time when the housing market had sort of been falsely inflated because of investments to the point that people were losing their homes. And that's exactly what I wanted to start investigating. Could we look at lower cost homes, how much lower cost, and the answer that I sort of discovered as I started interviewing people for my books were incredibly lower cost. The people in my book, every single one of them did this without a mortgage. Some of the organizations have small mortgages that they help people get, but we're talking virtually no money put into financing the actual building of these homes, and yet people have beautiful homes that they love to live in. So I wanted to just sort of present that to people and say, maybe there's an alternative method of obtaining this American dream of owning your own home outside of the conventional market, which was at the time very scary for a lot of people to be wanting to jump into. So no mortgage, very low cost. How were all of the people that you came into contact with able to do this? Most of the people who are individuals who are featured in the book, or all of them really, used salvaged materials. So they were spending virtually nothing on materials. Getting land is always going to cost money. There's just no way of getting around that. And so some of them had already purchased land. One of the families had land that they had been given by a grandparent who had passed away. And so that is an issue to overcome. And then several of the groups have come up with more formalized methods of helping low-income people 
get the tracts of land that they need to build their homes. But beyond that, they're using free materials and then putting tons and tons of their own effort into it. Dan Phillips of the Phoenix Commotion is one of the most inspirational people to me that I featured in the book. Uh, The Phoenix Commotion is based in Huntsville, Texas, and it's a group that builds low-income housing for people out of almost exclusively salvaged materials. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about the level of difficulty that we attribute to building houses and how it's really not rocket science. Most of the things that are required to build a house are fairly basic. And up until really not that long ago, most people did build their own homes. So to automatically assume that there's some sort of level of complexity with building a house that none of us can ever attain to do this is pretty much a false notion. Yes, for some very specific aspects, you would want to subcontract like electricity and things like that. But these people were saving money as they went along and they were putting tons of time into it and they were putting a lot of time and effort into gathering materials, but they were not putting a ton of money into it. One of them talked about putting in the resources that you have and he said, well, we didn't have money but we did have time and energy and enthusiasm. So we put in those resources rather than a resource we didn't have money. So how were they learning the process of building their houses? Did they have like a guide somewhere along the way? Were they looking at YouTube videos? What was their process? A couple of them were builders who were already experienced in it. The other method, the one couple was not experienced whatsoever, and they did a straw bale home. And so what they did was started working with the Straw Bale Association in their town. Most cities have a straw bale association if you go online and look for one. And they will often do workshops. So you go and help on somebody else's house and you kind of learn the ropes. And then you basically host your own workshop when it's time to do your house. So you get a bunch of people to come and help you after you've gone out and sort of learned the basics of what you need to do. So that's one method that people use to learn. Another one in the Phoenix Commotion, for example, Dan Phillips, who runs that organization, he takes applicants and then he he makes sure that every single homeowner that he creates a house for is participating in the building of their own home. And so he's out there kind of acting as a mentor and helping them. So he also recommends, yes, going and doing like builders workshops. There's sometimes classes that you can take at home stores. You can look things up online. You can take seminars. There's a lot of ways that if you're really wanting to do this, that you can learn that information. There's tons of resources available to you. It's just a matter of accessing them and taking the time to actually do these workshops, do these seminars, learn this information for yourself. So using reclaimed materials and their own labor and their friend's labor drastically cut down the cost of a house. How much money does one of these houses that they're building themselves and using reclaimed materials actually cost? I don't think that I have a straight figure on how much they spent, but like I said, there was no financing. So they're using money as they went along, you know, that they sort of could set aside. I would estimate less than a few thousand dollars to build all of these houses. You know, straw, depending on what area of the country you live in, straw bales you can acquire for very inexpensively. Now, contracting someone to build you a straw bale house is very expensive, but the actual materials that go into it are very low cost. And then in a straw bale structure, if you're not familiar with it, you sort of, you use straw bales as the interior of the wall and then you cover them with a plaster and you can make the plaster yourself. We've run recipes for making homemade plaster in Natural Home and Garden. You can look one up. It's essentially a mix of mud and sand and usually something like straw to give it some texture and you slather that on the walls. And so the materials that we're talking about are incredibly inexpensive. Now moving on to salvage materials, it's unbelievable to me 
the amount of high-quality salvage materials that these people were able to gather. Some of them were going to salvage yards and hunting through things. Most of them were from deconstruction. In most neighborhoods, most towns, if you go around, you'll see a very good portion of houses that are being deconstructed. I think that we're sending something like 135 million tons of deconstruction waste to the landfill every year. It's one of the largest components of landfill waste. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many houses would that amount to? I'm trying to remember how many millions. We're demolishing a huge portion of the amount of houses that we actually need. So these people were going to the various deconstruction people. The one couple, they lived in Idaho, and they would go to the town and kind of get to know the people who did the deconstruction, and they would call them ahead of time because they don't like the idea of tearing down all this perfectly good windows and things and just sending them straight to the landfill and say, hey, do you want to come cherry pick stuff out of this house? And so they would go and get huge amounts of building supplies out of these houses before they were demolished. That sounds incredible. So they just buy out the pieces as they're being deconstructed. So they say like, I'll give you like 30 bucks for this window and 20 bucks for this. They buying them. They're getting them for free. For free. Wow. Yeah, they're not buying them. They're going. These these are things that are going to the landfill anyway. And yeah, if you read the story, then one of the other families that lived in Alabama, they built their home out of almost entirely reclaimed materials, as did everyone in the book. But they got the majority of them also from the neighborhood, the town. He has this joke that he collected things from every town in his county. But it was buildings that were being torn down for whatever reason, or old barns, things like that. He would go and say, "Hey, are you tearing this down? Can I?" take all of the wood before you do and they'd say yeah haul it away and it's yours and so he would and he just sort of gathered all these things over time and to the point that he had enough to actually create an entire house out of it and then the same thing as I said with the the couple in Idaho they really just sort of developed relationships with the builders and deconstruction people in their area so that they were getting heads up hey there's a big house that we're going to be tearing down Everything is going to the landfill. If you want to come and take whatever you can, go for it on you know such and such day. Why are all these houses getting torn down all the time? Is it just that some of them are old or they're getting bought out by a developer and it's being redeveloped? Or why yeah. is there so much landfill waste? A variety of reasons. It could be that they're very old. It could be that someone doesn't want to put the money into fixing up an old house. So they come through and tear it down and put up a tract of houses that are more modern seeming. I know in the couple in Idaho's case, they live near Jackson, Wyoming, which is a fairly wealthy vacation spot. And so they said, oh, well, people, they're looking to make their dream vacation home. And so they would come and buy a piece of land and they didn't care how much they were spending. They wanted to just knock down whatever was there and build their dream home. So there were a 10,000 square foot home in Jackson is where they got of huge quantity of the stuff that's in their house. And they just basically got the heads up that this not very old house was going to be torn apart, come and get the stuff. And when I talked to them, it was about five years after they had sort of started this project that Aaron Power said, we're still getting phone calls because they're like, oh my gosh, we're tearing down this house and there's these really great cabinets. We don't want to trash them, but do you want them? Do you know anyone that wants them? I mean, there's a human instinct to not want to throw away perfectly good things. Where are these families living in while they're constructing these homes? 
well. The couple that I talked about in Idaho were living in, they had a bunch of their family members come out over the course of the summer that they were building the house. The couple, both of their younger sisters came and stayed with them. And then one of their fathers came and they had a trailer. I think they said they had a teepee that someone brought and set up for them. And they had like tents and they had set up sort of a little bathroom setup. And they said it was just sort of this weird campsite that they were staying in over the course of the summer while they were doing this. They all said it was really, really fun even though it may kind of sound awful. They said they got sort of a system down and it was sort of a party atmosphere and they all were camping out and having a great time. The couple who, the people who moved into the house in Alabama, they were living in a different home that I believe they sold afterwards. He is a builder and so they had actually through the course of their whole lives been sort of living in one home while fixing up a home and then moving into the next home and fixing that up and continuously sort of working on places. That family is really a fantastic story. The three sons were teenagers when they were building the house and they will really tell you how connected they are with this home and they kind of talk about how, well, we never felt really connected to our homes growing up because we moved around so much. You know, our family didn't have tons of money and this was our dad's job. And so we were constantly moving around and they're like, even though when we were 16 years old, the last thing we wanted to be doing on the weekend was spending it the entire time working on this house. It's now like one of the most powerful memories to us and shaped us as adults. And two of them went into building and one wants to be an architect. And it really made a huge impact on their life, way more than your standard sort of suburban home that you move into and is kind of this white box that you put your stuff on the wall. It's completely customized. Every part of their home has this family memory for them. Yeah, and you've got a huge bond to your house as you're building it from scratch. So you mentioned that they're working on the weekends. Do they, these people have nine to five jobs that they're working during the week? Is that is that yeah, how they're Yeah, everybody was employed. Themselves? Mm-hmm. Everyone was fully employed during the time that they built their houses. Wow. So they're able to just devote their weekends straight to the house building. Yeah, and evenings, they said. The thing with house building is kind of there's little things to do and then there's big things. So you have your big, like if you're doing a straw bale house, a couple in Idaho did straw bale, as did the one in Colorado. You have your big work party weekend where you go and you pretty much like you've erected all the walls and you've done all of your sort of pre-wall building in one weekend. And then you have a weekend where you plaster all the walls and you have 20 people come and they help you and you plaster the walls and you get that all done in one weekend. And then you have other weekends where you're doing smaller things. But, you know, so I think there's kind of an ebb and flow of the workload. Well, it seems to me that the prices of houses just being astronomical these days, people are going to be putting down $300,000 for like a large family home. Why is it that most people are not building their own homes? Making the leap from purchasing a home to building one seems kind of like a common sense thing to do if you don't have the cash to lay down to buy a home. Is there a stigma against building a home? Is it because people are not been brought up to build their own homes? Why is it that people are not building their homes more? I think because there's sort of a cultural attitude that you go out and you buy a home, that we don't possess the skills to build our own homes, that building homes is far too complex for the average person to do. Even managing the building of a home, I think a lot of people think is too complicated. And like I was saying before, uh, one of the biggest things that Dan Phillips is always talking about from Phoenix Commotion is building a home isn't rocket science. People have been doing this for years. Up until 100 years ago, it was not uncommon for many, many people to build their own homes. 
the world over in a billion different styles. So to completely discount the notion of being able to do it because it's simply too complex and too difficult, I think is sort of culturally ingrained and something that I don't know if there's a reason that the market wants people to believe this or if it's just sort of becoming our industrialized nation. It's easier to buy a house. It's easier to go out and buy marinara instead of growing your own tomatoes like we used to do and making it yourself. There's just more of a sort of this is made by people who specialize in this area, not everyone doing it for themselves. And although that's maybe fine for a lot of people, I think considering the idea, opening our minds to the idea that maybe we could build a home ourselves is a kind of exciting and fun way to think about things and also potentially a way that people can achieve this dream if they don't have the financial resources to do it. So I'm thinking about all of the people who really suffered when the bubble was first bursting, when the housing crisis really started back in 2005, 2006, and then it was picking up steam. And I just remember seeing images of whole communities in California just completely being emptied out. So let's say you were underwater on your mortgage and were thinking about where to go. A lot of people maybe moved back to their hometowns or moved in with family members. Do you think it's possible that if someone is foreclosed on or really experiencing a lot of pressure because their house is now worth less than what they paid for it, that going out and building a home is really an option? Yeah, I think that that would be a great option. Obviously, you have to resolve the situation with the original house, but in that situation, it's very likely that your credit has been damaged too. So the idea of going out and getting a loan is probably not very feasible. And I think instead of saying, okay, well, I have no options open to me, that's sort of why I wanted to write this book and why I wanted to present other models. It's interesting because you sort of talk about this and it's like, oh, well, this could never work. And it's like, to me, I'm thinking, but here are the people who have done it. They're living in these houses. They have already done this and are talking about how they did it. So it's not like this is a theory that has hasn't been tested. People are actually doing this. It's just very, very outside our normal sort of set of ideas about how one goes about making a home. wraps up her interviews with Jessica Kellner and John Michael Greer. When we were talking with Jessica Kellner, she said that basically there's about 135 million tons of deconstruction waste sent to the landfill every year in the United States, and a quarter million homes 
in the U.S. are demolished every year. And those are just mind-blowing numbers to think that there's that much material that's getting sent to the landfill that nobody's using. And it totally highlights the theme of John Michael Greer's green wizardry, where you're basically looking at the kinds of things that you have around you, the energy, the materials, the environment, and figuring out how to use those in ecologically responsible and intelligent ways. And there's no better way to demonstrate how poor our current economic system and society is at using all energy material and intelligence than all of those demolished houses that are getting sent to the landfill. It's the idea of always having a new thing. I know that in my family, my mother always wanted a new house. She didn't really want a house that somebody else had lived in. She didn't want a car that somebody else had driven. She wanted her own new thing. And it's this kind of idea that drives a lot of people's mentalities in this country and across the Western world, I'd say. Buying that new item, buying it fresh off the lot, buying that untouched home, it makes people feel like it's, it's, very, it's very fresh and it's new and it's only for them. Like that new car smell kind of thing. Very, yeah, very much so. And, and you know, th- there's a lot of merit to having something that's new. If you can afford it, that's fantastic. It's, it's not a very sustainable way to do it. For many people across the world, this has never been an option. Living in a, in a you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation home that has been passed down from generation to generation is something that is very much a reality for most people across the world. And as John Michael Greer said, and as Jessica mentioned, living in a reclaimed home, using materials from another home to to build onto your home, to make an addition, to to reconstruct a home is is a perfectly normal and natural and you know encouraged thing. There's all of these aspects of our society that we're trying to hold together that we're desperately clinging on to these ideas that we've had in our culture that we've built this suburban sprawl, you know, individual car ownership lifestyle around and now people are working really hard to try and hold on to that. I was just back in North Carolina visiting family over the holidays. It's been a crazy few years of working hard at my graduate degrees here at University of British Columbia, and I finally got to a point where I could take a good few weeks off and really relax. And one of the things I noticed in so many of the family members and extended family and people that I was seeing while I was home in North Carolina was really the stress that people run up against when they're trying to maintain this means of life, so many aspects of this way of life that are no longer tenable in the 21st century. And there's so many stresses of trying to afford these things, you know, the second car or living in an area where you have to drive all the time and the stress and the traffic stress and the frustration of having to finance this big house. It's creating these severe psychological and emotional problems. You know, you might hear about it in the news. There's some big outlash and the person had, you know, was on antidepressants or some form of severe mental illness. But it grates away at so many people at kind of like a sub perceptible level where it's just always grating on them where they're living in kind of this dying thing that is their economic system and they may not know it as such but it's causing all of this stress and anguish in their life john michael greer was highlighting that in his ideas of green wizardry as positive approach to kind of say you know this culture is falling apart let's build a new thing built on completely different ideas very ideas that are almost the opposite of the current cultural mindset that you were just mentioning seth where it's like i gotta have a new house or a new car just the fact that it's new and those are part of those cultural 
cultural assumptions that don't fly in the 21st century. John Michael Greer talked about a guy named Garrett Hardin, an uh, American ecologist, who talked about the tragedy of the commons and the fact that limits do exist. And when you refuse to think about the limits existing, then you're just not even thinking about the subject itself. If you're leaving out a big chunk of the problem, you can't consider the problem in its entirety. You can't have a logical discussion about it. You can't have a logical uh, feeling about it. You can only just have these these little glimpses of emotion that you just, oh, I think this is going to be this way because I believe this way. And this is this is the way that many people go about their lives. They go about their lives believing that, that a certain problem will resolve itself by believing hard or by just thinking that, that it will be that way when they just ignore many of the facts. This is really a large problem at the root of our society in many different ways. I also like the part where John Michael Greer was talking about finding what fires your crank. I mean, that man has a, has a fantastic way of turning a phrase. I mean, finding that thing that, that makes you feel happy, that makes you excited. You know, if, if it's weather stripping, then get out there and weather strip your house. If it's solar panels, find that those solar panels. If it's gardening, grow some food for your family. But this idea of finding what drives your passion, what makes you feel whole and what makes you feel excited about life is really what John Michael Greer is going for and I think is really the key of green wizardry. It mirrors my own story of when I started out years ago just being interested in beer and brewing and getting into home brewing. And it's that whole process of really becoming engrossed in the hobby and learning all the processes that go into making beer and getting all of the, you know, like glass uh, equipment, the carboys and the bottles and doing it. And by doing it, you learn it in a way that you can't just sit there in an academic setting and read through things and think about theories and uh, read about the idea of homebrewing in the way that you actually learn about it by doing it. And it definitely fits into these ideas of taking all of these aspects of our lives that we have entrusted to strangers, maybe in China or in another part of the world or another part of, the, of North America who made these things for us, and then just using money that we could access those things and have a completely anonymous relationship with them. But taking those things that we used to have other people create and make for us and taking a little bit of it into our own lives, it changes the game entirely for all of these supply chains, all of the globalization, all of the unsustainable trends that we talk about on our show. And you don't have to grow 100% of the food that you eat in your own house. But if you grow even 20 to 50% of it, it makes a tremendous difference. And that takes us into all of the great links and news items that our listeners send in to us that post on our Facebook page. And I just wanted to highlight one that Robin sent in recently, which was actually one of the blog posts from John Michael Greer's Arch Druid Report. And on the Arch Druid Report, John Michael Greer's highlighting an idea of seven sustainable technologies. And so for most people, that's ideas of wind turbines and solar photovoltaic panels or the smart grid. But John Michael Greer is saying that organic intensive gardening, solar thermal technologies, sustainable wood heating, sustainable healthcare, basically practicing healthcare as it was done 100 plus years ago, and also using some of the ideas that our modern research has discovered, letterpress printing, shortwave radio, 
computer-free mathematics. These are the things that over the next few hundred years will be extremely valuable and useful. And since you don't know exactly how the crisis is going to break down and where it's going to hit first and how it's going to hit, having these, uh, you know, maybe even a small aspect of these tools as part of your toolbox can be unbelievably meaningful for yourself and for the people that you care about. You know, we think about what the technology of the future is going to be and how iPhone 10 is going to come along and just totally revolutionize the industry. But maybe it's not going to be going in that direction. Maybe we're going to be going the other direction. Maybe we're going to be heading backwards into a technology plane that is that our grandfathers used to use and our great grandfathers used to be very familiar with. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting world when there's no iPhone 45 to hang our hats on. Yeah, when the idea of technological progress becomes disassociated from the latest Apple product, and that's something we bring up quite a bit on our show, this highlights another story that I came across on NPR, and the local food movement was so revolutionary, and it was such a small movement even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, and the changes that I've seen over the last decade have truly been incredible, and this one article that we'll link to in our show notes really highlights that, where where community-supported canning is being talked about now and is actually happening as an extension of community-supported agriculture. So where you would go and purchase a share in community-supported agriculture, and over the summer you'll have access to you know beautiful veggies and things from the farm that you're subscribing to. Now in the winter months, your CSA actually gets you preserved veggies where you can get sauerkrauts and preserved tomatoes and all of these things throughout the year. And so it's really exciting to see this one article that's talking about how community-supported preserves are coming along in the same model as CSAs. And this particular story highlights one specific example of it in Maine. No, I'm very excited about this, Justin. I'm looking forward to those preserved pickles because I definitely love pickles. And in much the same way that people are reusing their, their produce into pickles and canned tomatoes and jars of fantastic sauerkraut, people are also also repurposing their media budget into the extra environmentalist. And we are very, 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 very thankful to all the fantastic donators who have sent their hard-earned reclaimed dollars over to the extra environmentalist radio show and podcast. And that includes people like Paul in California who sent us a very generous donation. So we're extremely grateful for that. Thank you so much to Kevin out in Connecticut for the generous donation. Really appreciate it, Kevin. And also Dean in Colorado. We also have a repeat donator of Patrick out in Oregon. Thank you so much, Patrick. And Patrick writes in, he's been donating to our show for quite a while, and he says, why don't we have a subscription option on our website where people could donate, you know, three, five, ten dollars a month on a regular basis to our show? And that's definitely something that I've been thinking about, but I kind of want us to have something to offer if people are going to subscribe and have a kind of you know special subscriber thing that we do, but we're just definitely not at that point quite yet. But if you want to send us donation on a regular basis, we are unbelievably grateful for that. And it helps us do things like on our show today where we had John Michael Greer for you in HD quality because we were able to use our listener donations to send a microphone to him so we could actually have it in his location in Maryland as opposed to talking to him on his rural phone line full of noise. That's right. John Michael Greer now has a permanent microphone via the Extra Environmentals, via your fantastic donations that lives in his home. 
he doesn't really always know how to use it very well, but it's there, it's, and it's, it's there for him to use. And also thanks to Vincenzo in Pennsylvania for sending in a donation. He said that his brother turned him on to the show, so thanks also to your brother. A lot of those donations were above the $30 mark, and that means we're going to send out T-shirts to those people as well as T-shirts to the many people who are in waiting for those T-shirts. And I just talked to our T-shirt printer the other day, And according to him, our T-shirt should be done next week. That means we'll have those T-shirts printed and shipped to us hopefully by the end of January, which means that by the middle of February, we should be able to get those out. So sometime in February, you can finally uh, receive that Extra Environmentalist T-shirt that you've been waiting for for so long. If you want to hear more of the Extra Environmentalist, feel free to check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com where you can find a full archive of the Extra Environmentalist episodes for your viewing pleasure, for your listening pleasure, for you to download because they're all under Creative Commons for you to download and give out to your friends on CDs, remix them into your fancy dubstep remixes and post them on your Facebook walls. You can find us on Facebook as well as on Twitter. Find us on Stitcher Radio and send us email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And you can send us a voicemail by calling plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two or on Skype at the extra environmentalist as our handle. And we'd really love to hear any stories of green wizardry that you'd like to share with us that we could play on an upcoming episode. So that's a little piece of inspiration for you. If you have been waiting for that opportunity to call and you want to call in and tell us about maybe the hoop house that you built for your tomatoes, the way that you've converted a small patch of your lawn to keep a few goats or chickens on, something like that, call in, put that phone up to the goat's mouth and let us hear it chomp down on all the compost that you're feeding it. Don't let that goat eat the phone. That that would be really bad. Yeah, that would be really sad. And that does it for this episode of The Extra Environmentalist. We've got a pretty exciting production schedule lined up for 2014. So now that we're back from our our short break over the winter, you can expect The Extra Environmentalist coming at you several times a month with everything that you'd expect and more. So feature go to smartphone, find your way out into the hoop house, and enjoy the last dregs of winter. Hey Seth, Justin, this is Kevin here from Sweden. I just got done listening to episode 69, do it actually for the second time. You know why I really like your guys' uh, podcast here is uh, if all we do is, is talk about peak oil, climate change, you know, it's kind of like looking at a road sign. We get bored of looking at all those road signs and we end up just kind of ignoring the road signs. So we need to start to, to look to solutions and and everybody, you know, we want to jump on the bandwagon at first and how can we change other people, but we have to really change ourselves, you know, and that's what I've been doing here the last 10 years now since I've been in Sweden, building up this permaculture center. When I first moved here to Sweden, there was an article in the paper and the king got a letter because one of the kings back... 200 years ago, wanted to plant a forest of oaks because uh, they were going to need some new battleships maybe in the future. 
So about 10 years ago, the king got a letter that his, uh, his trees were ready to make his battleships. Unfortunately, I don't think Sweden is really looking forward uh, like they should be, like I would like to see them. We hear, yeah, Sweden's really on the front lines of, of uh, climate, looking at climate and everything, but I was at some local meetings here and all they're talking about is, well, if we trade in all our cars for um, hybrid cars, you know, so people still want just same old, same old, even here. Keep up the great work and it's uh, good to hear you guys. We'll hear you next month. Doksha. We now produce as many manufactured goods in each four-year period as all of mankind produced from the dawn of history until 1945. And yet there are more miserable people on earth than ever before. Gross national product is the conventional measuring stick of the economist. In the name of gross national product, says Schumacher, modern man will resort to any degree of technological violence and human degradation. McRobie and Schumacher are the champions of low technology. They point out that examples of high technology now lie in ruins across Asia and Africa. Nowhere in these offices will you find the plans for the elephant canning factory that had to close down when they discovered that hardly anybody wanted to eat elephant and fewer still wanted to put them in cans. Nowhere on these shelves will you find the plans for the plastic shoe factory that made 40 people rich and put 5,000 shoemakers out of business. These well-meaning schemes to elevate the third world sprang from the brightest brains of the great industrial nations. These very, very clever people are a trial, and I tend to be impatient with them, which doesn't help. I accuse many of my fellow economists as uh, rearranging with great acumen, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I, I wish they would uh, at least do something with their hands to get a real feel of things again. If, uh, if they come and um, turn real-life situations into mathematics, all the life is taken out of it. There I, that I find a great trial. Too many of our academics have got stuck with a concept. The Buddhists say Buddhism is a finger pointing at the moon. For goodness sakes, study the moon, not the finger.
On Extra Environmentalist number 73, we're going to be talking about shrinking the economy through a new revolutionary movement where we'll be talking about a contractionary revolution with Frank Rotering on the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm trying to start a movement to contract the world's uh, economies, especially, of course, the, the richest, most bloated economies, such as ours here in Canada, the U.S., uh, etc. The main logic behind contractionism is this. If you take a look at the trends over the last few hundred years, you'll see that population, habitat destruction, etc., etc., all rose exponentially in step with the growth of capitalism. There is a link, a tight link, between the ecological crisis we face and the development of capitalism since about 15, 1600. And the conclusion is that capitalism, in some sense, must go. And that capitalism must therefore be historically superseded. Now what that means, we're going to talk about, but that's my basic argument. Winter Olympic Games. Live from the United Arab Emirates, hosted in Dubai. Hello and welcome to the Winter Olympics of 2026. I'm Wright Miaf, joined by my co-host Robert Thruster, and we're bringing you the Winter Olympics like you've never seen them before. Coming to you out of the steamy desert of Dubai, the Winter Olympics in the most energy inefficient way you've ever seen them before. Robert, let's go through some of the events. Oh man, Rat, you just have no idea how excited I am to be here. This is an absolutely incredible opportunity to be at the 2026 Winter Olympics here in Dubai, held mostly inside a giant mall in Dubai. This is the closest the Winter Olympics have ever been held to the equator, mainly because over the last 10 years or so, the world has been experiencing such energy austerity that everybody thought the best way to lift the spirits of the world was to blow a tremendous amount of energy into this event. It's incredible. The whole thing is powered by these giant LNG, liquid natural gas, export terminals, where the refrigeration pumps in to the Dubai Mall, into the abandoned buildings, and powers this amazing display of energy waste. When the bubble burst in Dubai, everybody thought about changing the name from Dubai to Ducel. But now, it's time to buy again, because we're here for the Winter Olympics. Now, before we get back to you, right, I wanted to give a shout out to the official winter drink of the Olympics, named after the leadership here in Dubai, the Milkshake Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. It's so exciting. The official milkshake leader of the Olympics. How excited are you to be here, right? My goodness, Robert, this is fan freaking tastic. I know people from around the world are tuning in right now on their high-definition 20,000-inch TVs to see what's happening here right now, right here, right now. 
Oh man, right, everybody's watching these events on their iPad 15 super-powered retina displays. They're seeing all the ships out in the harbor, how they're just burning massive amounts of shale, oil, liquid natural gas in order to power the amazing amounts of mind-blowing air conditioning that's flowing into all of the Olympic venues here. Let's run down some of these events. You got it, Robert. Let's start with the first one here. We've got a ski jump going on inside the mall. And we're going to be bobsledding between the buildings. This is a very exciting time for us here. We are closing off a portion of the city, super cooling the city, and making it perfect for a bobsled and ski jump event inside the mall. It's going to be fantastic. We're inside the giant mall here in Dubai profiling our first event. And as far as other Middle Eastern nations go, everybody's expecting Syria to bomb. Let's go inside to our first venue to jump me up, our ski jump expert. Oh, yeah, Robert, thanks. We have the event all set up inside this empty mall here. We have our competitors lining up on the top of the escalator. The escalator has been extended over 300 feet in the air to give the competitors the leading edge of the jump. You can land in a shoe store, you make your way all the way to the food court, where if you find a food court, that's usually a, a silver medal, but if, you, if you're going all the way, Robert, you enter yourself in a, uh, in a Victoria's Secrets or a H.H. Uh, Gregg, you're, you're never going to know what hits you, it's going to be gold medals all the way down. Thanks for that jump, that's really incredible. As we continue on with our coverage of this incredibly stupid event, I mean the stupidest event that has ever happened, we're gonna touch on some of the intricate details of how all of this energy is being wasted to have this event. Now, let's talk about one of your favorite events, right? The Diathlon. Tell me about the Diathlon. Absolutely, Robert, absolutely. The Diathlon, one of my favorite events as well, has people running around usually on skis, you know, shooting targets and stuff. This year they've, they've re re revamped it a little bit. Today, this time they're going to be, instead of shooting targets, we're going to be shooting whales. And this is going to be providing the fuel to maintain the cold temperature for the building. And the, the trick here, Robert, is, is if they fail to shoot the whales, then the whole game starts thawing out and everybody has to go home. So these people are keeping the whole place going by shooting these whales. And they have to be really good at shooting because whales are, are tricky animals to shoot. Sounds to me like we're going to have a whale of a time here, no matter what. Absolutely, absolutely. This is one of those things that you just, you're just not gonna, you're not going to want to miss. Now, we could go over and cover the reconfigured skating where they have all these abandoned barges from the shipping industry, global shipping industry, reconfigured to host all of the skaters. Or we could talk about the curling on the desalinated part of the ocean that's been frozen. But instead, we're going to wrap up our intro coverage because you're going to get to those events throughout the weeks of the Olympics. So, to, to close out our intro coverage, we're going to the Olympic torch lighting. We're lighting a giant pile of worthless paper currency. That's absolutely right, Robert. We have followed the torch burning worthless currency around the world. We've seen dollars being burned in the United States. We've seen Canadian dollars being burned in Canada. We followed down to pesos in Mexico, all the way across to kroners and... In, uh, Denmark, in Denmark and in, in Scandinavia. This year's Olympic torch is just a giant pile of all the world's worthless currencies. That's right, and we're going to see it all go up in flame. I see right now that it's being covered in flammable oil. It's getting ready to be lit by our famous there's a large dump truck backing up, dumping some more currency on here, and here comes the flame now. Carried by our very own recently deceased Ben Bernanke's ghost coming all the way, all the way across the pond here to light the torch. This is a fantastic event, Robert. You know, it's choking me up a little bit. And, and here it goes now, folks. He's running in, running. He's about to take the leap, leaping into the flame of currency right now. And it's all going up. It's all, it's so beautiful. Actually, the flames are so intense, they've 
actually caught some of the crowd on fire. And that closes out our initial coverage of the opening ceremonies of the 2026 Winter Olympics in Dubai. When we return, we'll be inside the skeleton of giant abandoned skyscrapers for the skeleton event. Or we could cut to the half pipeline snowboarding.